This episode of No Planet B is brought to you by Big Ben Strength. Big Ben Strength is a conditioning and coaching facility that specializes in private and remote coaching. Uh, full disclosure, I've been a big fan of Big Ben Strength since before they were a sponsor. Their gym hosts competition-winning athletes, and they focus really heavily on building strength and uh, through strength building confidence. I've been using their programs for a little while now, and uh, my favorite is the Centaur Legs. It, it quite actually kicked my butt. But yeah, they have tons of programs that you can choose from that are pre-written. They also have uh, custom monthly programs that you can sign up for and do those monthly. You can visit their website at bigbendsc.com. That's bigbendsc.com to see their selection of pre-written programs as well as their custom monthly programs that you can use remotely. Doesn't matter where you live. Here at No Planet B, we do not skip leg day. We'll never, we'll never skip leg day, Brianna. Welcome to No Planet B, a podcast where we're talking about climate change, as well as its effects on Planet A. I'm Wyatt Jordan. I'm Brianna Watergate. This week on No Planet B, (laughs) we're talking to Matt Fiddler about California wildfires. Matt is a podcast host, recordist, editor, mixer, composer, producer, and audio engineer. And he was a delight to talk to. (laughs) He actually has his own podcast called California Burning, if you guys want to check it out sometime. It's incredible. He's a good storyteller. We love Matt. Love you. Love you. <laughs> that, was, that was uncomfortable. This one, this one goes... <laughs> <laughs> Matt, this part's specifically for you. We love you. Anyway. All right, everyone. Here comes the interview. I hope you're ready. Uh, you blink and you might miss it. Here it comes. I'm from California. I was raised in the San Francisco Bay Area in the East Bay in a town called Walnut Creek. Then uh, I moved to New York for four years just, you know, to work in media and, you know, do radio stuff because that's what I do for a living. Then I came back to California in um, mid-2017. And yeah, it was, you know, the state was on fire. I drove an RV from New York back to California, and um, when I was going over the Reno Basin, which is how you kind of enter the Bay Area from Nevada, 
Yeah, it was full of smoke. I think um, Yosemite, I think, was on fire at the time. And my niece and nephew, you know, school was canceled for them and they weren't supposed to do anything out, outdoors. And yeah, and then wherever I went, there was just fires all over the place. Santa Barbara, Ventura, they had all those crazy landslides. And, you know, we have some friends down that way. So we visited them and they told us stories about fires. And we ended up settling in the town of Chico, which is Northern California, about 100 miles north of Sacramento. Pretty, very rural, very rural area where I live now. And yeah, I mean, just foothill fires, they happen all over the place. But some of them were getting really out of control, um, especially the Santa Rosa fire of 2017. That at the time was the worst fire California had ever experienced because it went through I mean, it was worse than the San Francisco fire of 1906 and the 1991 fire in Oakland, which happened when I was a kid, really close to where I lived. But this fire just went through these neighborhoods and just, and it was like, it's not like it was this rural area. It was fairly urban. And yeah, it just went from house to house and it was just so destructive and unstoppable. And it rained ash everywhere. I was, you know, 40 miles south of this, and it was raining ash on me at the time. Oh, then the next year, I mean, things got worse. There was more fires, and then, of course, my my closest town to the town of Chico is the town of Paradise. And so, yeah, last year, a little over a year ago, there was this fire that spread really rapidly into the town of Paradise, which had about 29,000 people in it, in the foothills, very wooded, surrounded by tons of trees, pine trees, oak trees, that kind of thing. And, um, it was, you know, a working class, uh, largely a retirement community. I mean, there's families that live there too, but a lot of people went there to retire because it was affordable and it was beautiful. So like it ripped through trailer parks, it ripped through manufactured homes that were spaced really closely to each other, but also regular stick constructed homes. I mean, it, it burnt 90% of the town in just a couple mm. of days. And so we lost about 20 or 25,000 homes in our county in just a couple of days. And this is a county whose total population is 220,000 people. California has experienced, well, my county has experienced climate refugees and maybe some of the first uh, in our country. But part of the reason why I did move back to the West Coast is I really missed my connection with nature. Um, it was a little difficult to have that in New York, and mm-hmm. uh, at least on a day-to-day life and um, day-to-day you know, basis. So coming back to Chico, we're on the edge of the Central Valley of California, where, you know, one of the most productive growing regions in the world. And then it's on the edge of where the Cascade Mountains um, meet the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And so it's a really beautiful place um, and with a l- really unique environment. I mean, you have these fairly new volcanic mountains and uh, then, mm. the, then the ancient Sierra Nevada Mountains, which are so grand. And so they meet and it creates all these really cool waterways, which is why the soil is so good here because it just there's all these nutrients so there's tons of gold in the mountains and there's really really fertile land in the valley and so that's why this area is one of the first areas developed by americans uh, in california they discovered gold really close here and then the people settled here because they're like oh my god you can grow anything here all we need to do is you know commit genocide against all the native people who currently live here and they did that that was part of the research that i was not really I mean, I guess I should have expected it, but it wasn't what I was thinking I was going to come across. Mm-hmm. But when talking about the history yeah. of the land management here, it's like, oh, wait a minute. There were a lot of people that lived here before, and they, act- yeah. and they did have societies, and they were fairly advanced, just not advanced the way that Western society recognized advanced. But they had extremely mm. advanced culture of cultivating everything they need from the land here. And that was, that was a profound experience, learning all of that. 
We can get into um, more specific wildfire questions now. Cool. What are some common ways for wildfires to start? So um, there's kind of two general ways that fires start, and there's nature-caused fires, and there's man-made fires. And uh, in California, during the summers, during July and August, and sometimes even to September, lightning fires in the mountains are very common. And that's how the mm. fires would uh, would start historically. Because there's, you know, as far as these mountains go back in history, you know, before the native peoples were even here, these fire, these these mountains burned. California has really dramatic geography. We go from you know, a valley floor of about 100 feet or 150 feet above sea level to, you know, 10,000, 11,000 feet in not a really long distance. And so the weather comes off the Pacific Ocean, flows over the valley, and then it condenses um, to these really dramatic mountains and canyons. And then that creates thunderclouds and they'll light the trees on fire. But when they happen during the summer, um, the weather is not real dramatic. It's, there's not a ton of wind. Uh, they tend to have a lot of low pressure, and so those fires aren't spread with, you know, these gale force winds like the catastrophic fires that we've experienced have been. Like the, the campfire that burnt Paradise or the Santa Rosa fire, they were man-made, and it happened during the fall after really long dry summers. Unlike Florida, we don't get rain in the summer. And so we, like, before the Santa Rosa fire and before the campfire, the two worst fires in California's history... There had been a seven or eight month period with no rain, like literally no rain for seven months. And so everything mm. was really dry. And every fall, we get a lot of winds, especially in this area where I am. I said we have all these canyons. There's this area known as Jarbo Gap, where a major river comes through the Feather River and, um, and, and a couple and many branches of that river. And there's these huge canyons. And then when uh, at the end of fall, when the valley floor is really hot and really, really dry, but then the um, mountains are starting to get cool because it's fall. And so the mountains up at 8,000 feet are really cold. Maybe they're even getting a little bit of snow if there's any precipitation. And so then be that contrast between the wind on the valley floor and the mountains caught, makes a lot of wind. And so when a fire happens in those wind conditions, you cannot put out those fires. They're yeah. way too strong. No firefighting team in the world can put out the fires led by 80 mile per hour winds. And so when fires happen from uh, a spark of a car, which happened in the car fire, which is not named C-A-R-R fire in, uh, in Reading at a place called Car Powerhouse. <laughs> kind of confusing because it was started by a, yeah. by a car <laughs> okay. as well. But that happened during windy times. And so that fire spread really fast. And then the Camp and Santa Rosa fires, they happened in November when, yeah, we had these really strong winds, one of many reasons why these fires are so much more deadly is because the more deadly fires are happening when fires didn't traditionally happen in these ecosystems because they're yeah. not happening by nature. They're happening by, you know, PG&E. Yeah, so lightning strikes, the most common ways fires happen um, by nature. But of course, yeah, man-made fires can be started by anything, but um, power lines, failures seem to be a big one. Sparks from cars seem to be a big one. Being lazy with your campfire. Arson, you know, that's started fires in the past. But it's, it's when these fires happen and where they happen. That's, when, that's what really makes them deadly. Yeah. So you're saying like kind of the man-made ones are a little bit more dangerous because that's not traditionally where a fire is a common thing? Um, I mean, they're not necessarily more dangerous, but um, 
they can be more dangerous because they're not necessarily going to start at the same time of the year. Nature, mm -hmm. natural started fires rarely start by anything but lightning. Yeah. And so, and lightning only happens during certain times of the year. Although with climate change, who knows, that may change a little bit too. You know, our weather patterns are certainly becoming more unpredictable. Yeah, that's for sure. And then how do these wildfires generally get put out? I feel like you always hear about them in the news, you always hear about them happening, and then after a while, they kind of, we just stop hearing about it? Yeah, because fires, well, small fires can, really small fires, if you catch them at the very beginning, can kind of be put out, but they, they don't actually like put out a fire, like a, a forest fire, like they would a house fire with a bunch of hoses. Um, yeah. You let it burn out. You basically, mm. what you do is you, you just let it burn all the fuel, and so you surround it, by digging giant ditches and, you know, creating fire boundaries where the fire, you know, in strategic points, having, you know, you use the geography, you use the location of the wind and you're digging away things. And so you're, you're digging a firewall. And then when it says it's contained, they always have that percentage of containment, right? So how you get that is if the, if the fire has a perimeter of a uh, hundred yards, which of course would be a tiny fire, but for math's sake, let's do that. And let's say you dig a trench around, you know, 50 yards of it. Well, that, that uh, fire is 50% contained, but it can always escape that other 50% that's not. If it's a hundred percent contained, it means they basically have a fire line dug around the entire thing. And then you just wait for it to burn all the fuel. So that's why these fires take forever to come out. And big dangerous fires like the campfire, like the fire in Santa Rosa, um, like the Thomas Fire in Ventura, these, they're really only put out when you get the rains. Mm. Historically, large fires, really, they can be somewhat contained if you're lucky and, um, and have a huge team of people and resources, but fires really aren't put out until the weather changes. Gotcha. I've always just sort of pictured airplanes dropping water on top of them. Is that like not sustainable at all? You can, they do do that. that and that, that is the way they contain fires and contain the spread of the fires. Mm -hmm. um, it can be difficult. Like they weren't able to do that with a campfire for a long time because of wind conditions. Oh, mm. gotcha. They weren't even able to lift up helicopters and that kind of stuff. Um, wow. Yeah, they do do that. And that is one way they contain it um, by, by dump, picking up water from reservoirs and, and dumping on it and that kind of thing. Are these wildfires predictable after they've started, or is it just kind of up in the air? Um, you, you can predict them somewhat, not very far in advance. You can understand how the behavior might work, especially if you're in you know, canyons and places with predictable geography and wind conditions. But yeah, things can change really fast, and you know, fire can make its own little weather patterns, which then can make it really unpredictable, and you get these kind of fire tornadoes. And again, when you have that kind of wind, the only thing you can predict is its unpredictability. I'm talking about ca these major catastrophic wildfires. They're, they're hard to predict. They're hard to control. Um, but you can, you know, like I talked about on a couple of the episodes, but especially the Native intelligence episode, if you choose to do the burning, like the Native Americans did throughout this whole country, actually pretty much throughout both continents, South America and North America, you can predict it. And if you burn at the right times and you understand the area, human civilization hmm. became advanced because of our ability to control fire, you know, making the internal combustion engine to, you know, I mean, campfires and stoves. And if you hmm. understand what you're dealing with, fire is very predictable. And kind of what the problem is, is that we've, we use a, a more advanced fuel than, 
you know, in the last hundred years, we've used a much more advanced system of fuel. When we stopped you burning wood and started burning fossil fuels instead, we kind of stopped maintaining our forests for wood and we let our forests grow kind of large because we don't like to trim, um, you know, we don't make things out of small, small trees like what we'd burn. Small trees and small plants are great for burning, but they're not great for lumber. And we only use our trees for lumber now. We don't, as, mm. a, as a whole, we don't use trees for making fire anymore. We use fossil fuels for that. So now there's actually a lot more fuel to burn in the forest. And so it's like, we've kind of chosen one form of fire over another, but we, did, we haven't done anything. Well, so like, okay, well now what do we do with all the excess fire fuel? We haven't really yeah. figured out what to do with that. And that's, again, that's one of several mm. conditions kind of leading up to the catastrophic fire conditions. In Florida, you guys burn. The Everglades get burnt yeah. all the time. Yeah, definitely. And, um, right? And, and that's what, uh, I'm sorry, what are the, um, so what, who are the native peoples of Florida? The, the uh, Seminole? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they, they, they've had an uninterrupted uh, system of burning for maintenance for thousands of years. Um, oh, really? And, and that system was throughout the entire country, but Florida as, you know, the unconquered, they call them the unconquered Seminole, right? Because they were never officially took it conquered. <laughs> and yeah. so they're, they, they're like one of the few places in this country, or maybe, maybe the only place in this country, um, where fire, you know, burning for maintenance hasn't ended. But it was all over this country, and gold miners, well, actually, you know, Spanish missionaries, um, uh, first stopped the burning when they first came to California, and then you know gold miners and pioneers uh, from the East Coast of America stopped the, the the last of the burning from happening, like in the area where I currently live. And so these areas were maintained with fire, and yeah. without that maintenance, we've just gotten into our you know, we've gotten ourselves into a lot of trouble. Yeah. So is controlled burning is that a a viable modern solution for wildfires, would you say? Or mitigation, rather? I don't know how scalable it is. I think in rural mm. areas, like near where I live, or even more rural areas, even north of where I live, I think that is um, a good solution. But, you know, we live in such a different place than, um, you know, when the population was less than a million people. We have 40 million people in California, and we all need to breathe clean air. If we were main... And, and our forests have been haven't been well maintained for 100 150 years so burning all of this would and then of course we also have cars and tractors and factories putting smoke into the air like they didn't have 150 years ago so adding all this smoke from prescribed burns to all the exhaust and smoke that we burn through industry Mm -hmm. for 40 million people to live in i don't know if that is viable i think on a small scale i think it might be one tool but we can't overuse that tool because we all need to breathe I, i think it is important tool to use. And I like it that uh, a lot of, um, you know, Indian tribes are starting to use that again, because I think that helps them connect to their culture. And, mm. and I think that's extremely important. I do believe that the native peoples of California need to be the leaders in the environmental movement because they have the most experience here. But we can't do traditional ways. We don't live, and this is not hundreds of years ago. We have to, we have to do a modern approach to it. But I think understanding how the, the land was once cared for is an important first step. I think prescribed fire is one tool, but um, it probably can't even be the biggest tool. Really? But, yeah, because it's just like, you can't, you can't do prescribed, a bunch of prescribed fire in the Santa Barbara Hills. There's too many people that live there. So I go into some other kind of possible methods that do some of the same thing in the, in the final episode. Yeah. I don't know if you want to go into that now, but... I would love to hear about that. Let's yeah. go. 
Uh, all, so many of these issues around, you know, climate change and ecosystem disruption kind of cross over with each other. And one of this is agriculture. Our current system mm -hmm. of agriculture is, is ruining our soil. You know, we're using monocrops, we're rototilling, we're ruining the structure of soil. And the structure of the soil is really important because it holds water and it holds nutrients and it gives space for, for roots to move and all this other stuff. And when you get rid of structure of the soil, it's not going to hold as much nutrients. And then you have to give it a lot more, um, you know, artificial fertilizers. Mm. And then that ruins groundwater supply and it's blah, 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 blah. A lot of people have been making this kind of biochar, which is basically like making a, a kind of a charcoal and by doing low burns of woody material. And then you place that into the ground and it gives the soil structure and it can absorb water. I found these people locally that are making a special kind of biochar. And what they're doing is they're, they're heating it over, instead of just heating it at a low level campfire, they're putting it in a retort like a, a, an oxygenless kiln, and they cook it for eight hours, and then they cool it for another six to eight hours. And, hmm. it, and so it, it really almost pollutes nothing into the air because it's without oxygen, and it keeps the structure, and it makes this really interesting form of carbon, which can absorb tons of water, can absorb nutrients, and these other people have managed to figure out how to combine it with bioplastics to create huh. compostable um, consumer items. Like they've actually made an uh, iPhone case out of this biochar made from natural materials um, that can be composted in your backyard composter. Hmm. And so the idea is they, they're trying to bring out companies out to this area in Oroville that will use this special kind of biochar and carbon that it makes to make products like clothing products, plastic products that they can sell locally as an environmentally friendly product that encourages people to go into the forest to get rid of some of this woody material that's causing the fires and making it into a product. Because forest thinning by itself, which is basically just removing that burnable material, is extremely expensive. And until now, there's been no use for that product. So you take out all this... I see. Right, because like when you thin a forest for fire prevention, you leave the big trees. Because big trees don't burn easily. And you take out yeah. the small trees, the woody material, the dead branches, and that kind of stuff. And that's really expensive to do, because there are literally millions of acres that need this to be done to. And mm. so the, forest, the forestry department is way under-budgeted, way underfunded, and does, yeah, doesn't have the budget to do this. And so they often partner with t timber companies and go, okay, well, you can take all these large trees here if you promise to also take these small trees. Yeah. That, often doesn't, that often doesn't cut it because, again, those large trees are what are the most um, fire-resistant. And then yeah. they're only doing a certain amount because they have to make a profit. And what do they do with all this small material? Maybe they chip it. Maybe they burn it. But if you could take that material and make it into a product that you could then sell to the public, mm -hmm. that will actually encourage private enterprise to do this forest maintenance. And they're actually doing this in Colorado already with all, you probably heard about um, the forests in Colorado. It's happening actually here in California as well, but worse in Colorado about the, the bark beetle that's causing all this mass tree mortality. Yeah. And so this company called Biochar Now is removing this these dead bark beetle pine, which are extremely flammable because it's completely dry and dead trees, and they're making it into biochar and they're selling it to landscaping companies. Um, Very cool. They're actually they're selling a lot of it to Dupont, um, you know, the chemical company, because um, you know, a hundred years ago they spilled a ton of mercury into um, into a river near their factory, and they're they're required to clean it up. They're able to put this biochar into the soil. And the biochar actually absorbs the mercury. Cool. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so there's a lot of potential to it.
And it's just, it hasn't happened at a large scale yet. It's at a very small scale, but uh, the people doing it tell me that it can be scalable. But of course, you know, they would tell me that. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> they would. Um, but, you know, they're, so, they're optimistic. They're trying to run a business. And I, I, and I wish them the best because, I mean, it, it would be a great thing. If this could be a solution, you know, it doesn't yeah. pollute the air, it gets the woody material out of the forests, and it potentially helps soil and toxic cleanup. Like, how awesome is that? Yeah, that's incredible. So let me see if I have this correct. So biochar is kind of a viable option because we need to be thinning these forests out to sort of remove fuel that otherwise would be fuel for wildfires. And to remove that fuel efficiently, we need to have some way of having it make money. And that's where biochar is. We take that fuel and use it for a product and then sell that so we can keep funding the thinning of these forests. Does that kind of make sense? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly okay. what it is. Yep. And I know biochar, we've actually talked about biochar a few times with the agriculture sector running into as much trouble as it's going to with climate change. We've actually explored biochar as a a cool solution to a lot of issues. So I could see that being sold to farmers as well. That's yeah, very yeah. cool. And it, it wouldn't be just biochar by itself, but the idea is that the biochar can hold nutrients. And so you can add mm. organic... One, one, a major problem with agriculture right now is you're adding, especially when you add chemical fertilizers uh, and the soil isn't good, you have to add, because the soil isn't holding the fertilizers very well, the farmers, in order for them to get uh, effectiveness from these fertilizers, they need to put way more fertilizer than the plant needs because most of the fertilizer runs off. I see. And then that runs off into, you know, for example, the Mississippi River. Look at the Mississippi River on like Google Maps, um, mm-hmm. you know, around where it hits Louisiana. It's a really funky color because of yeah. all of the fertilizer runoff from the upper states that just, and it culminates and it's toxic and now, and now it's polluting the Gulf of Mexico and mm. yeah, so it's creating good soil is and soil that can absorb nutrients and absorb water is, uh, I feel like, one of the crucial issues of our time. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's why, that's why the reporting on this took so long, because I would go on these long tangents, and I end up you know, talking to you know, Secretary of Agriculture or something like that, and I'm like, wait a minute, i got to focus this on fires, and I've gotten on yeah. this long tangent, and as yeah. interesting as this is, it has nothing to do with my fire story. Or, you know, it, it does, but... <laughs> it's it's almost too abstract to kind of connect. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I hope yeah. this conversation is making sense to other people. <laughs> no, I think it will. Yeah, I think it absolutely makes sense because we've we have a lot of discussions about like solutions and things like that. So a lot of these solutions have to be cool. driven by ways for them to like be sustainable. Like sustainability is something that's important that we talk about. So I think everyone listening would have a pretty good grasp on that. Right. Yeah. That was um a lot of the little solutions that are happening and have been happening around fire that haven't been making huge impacts because they're not sustainable. Like, yeah. like, oh, great, we got a grant to clean up this little neighborhood. Well, it took three years to get that grant. Yeah. And, and then what about the neighborhood right next to it? It's going to take another three years to get that grant. And by the time you get that grant, the old project needs maintenance again. Because these mm-hmm. the, we get so much rain in these mountains. We get so little rain on the valley floor, but we get a ton of rain in the mountains. And so, and the soil is so good up there, stuff just grows. It grows so fast. Uh, Some of these areas, traditionally, they were burnt by the Native Americans every three to five years because they would grow back so fast. And so to maintain a meadow or to maintain certain plant species, they would have to burn a lot because stuff just grows really fast. We have really hot summers, tons tons of uh, hot sun in the summer, tons of rain in the winter. So, I mean, that's, again, that's why 
a lot of the food you eat comes from this area, you know? Mm. It's, it, but yeah, it needs constant maintenance. It needs constant maintenance. Um, Which is funny. And I'm, I'm sorry, can I go into one other random tangent yeah, on, on that? <laughs> for sure. And, yeah. yeah, I think um, a lot of people that feel the way that, you know, that are very, con- like us, that are concerned about the way we treat the environment, um, we often look at industries and big business and that kind of stuff as the main culprits. And, and mm-hmm. that's often true. But um, us as environmentalists, I don't know if you guys call yourself an environmentalist. Sometimes some people don't like that term, but mm. I, I don't know a I'm better one. Um, yeah. We need to look at our own practices and look at tradition too, because I think a lot of this overgrowth actually has to do with a reaction to the logging that has happened around here. And the clear cutting of these forests has been horrendous and it's been happening for a really, really long time. And it, you know, it's, it's horrible for the forests. It, it destroys ecosystems. But then the opposite side of just leaving the forest completely alone, um, where you don't touch it at all, is kind of almost e- equally bad as far as the forest fires it can start. And so like, mm. often they say, oh, you can clear cut this, but then we're not going to touch this over here. Well, both of those tracks of lands are going to be unhealthy. One is going to be unhealthy because all the trees have been cut and the topsoil is washing away. And, yeah. and, and then the other is going to be unhealthy because there's no room for larger trees. And then now, you know, we have to accept that they're invasive species all over California. You know, the Spanish introduced them years ago. And then, you know, the rest of Europeans and Australians and whatever have introduced invasive species all over the place. Without the burning of those invasive species, they will take over. Span- there used to be these bunch grasses that littered California that had really, really deep roots and that were evergreen. They never went dry. And you look at the golden hills of California, that's not the natural state of California. The natural state mm-hmm. of California would be green grasses in the summer. But instead, we introduced Spanish wheat and uh, English bluegrass that are annual grasses that die every summer. And then so their roots aren't deep. They don't stay evergreen and they burn very easily. So without maintaining any of this stuff, the invasive species take over. The shade tolerant trees like Douglas fir take over everything and it gets rid of trees that need a lot more sun. Mm-hmm. Both kind of ideological sides of the political spectrum have been right about certain things and have been wrong about certain things. And um, the logging community or the, the forest management community, most of them, they understand the need for maintaining our forests. They want to cut maybe a few more logs than maybe like the Native American community would want to do. But these areas, they need, they need to be paid attention to. And uh, you can't just say, oh, just leave it to nature. Because humans are a part of nature, and humans mm-hmm. have been a part of this ecosystem here where I live in California and where you live in Florida, too, for thousands and thousands of years. And so just taking humans completely out of that ecosystem is not the right approach either. So we need to look mm. for some sort of balance. And that includes environmentalists such as myself relooking at, you know, whenever I would see a fire, like a, a pile burn when I was a kid, you know, going up to Tahoe on a vacation, it would always upset me. And it upset my parents. And we go, oh, my God, what are they doing? Ah, my God. You know, you accuse people of being ignorant or, or not caring about the environment. But then I sort of realized, oh my gosh, this is actually how that land was maintained for tens of thousands of years. Maybe I was wrong. Oh man, mm-hmm. maybe cutting some trees down is actually really important. So like, it's just like, it's like trimming your tree in your backyard. You make it healthier by trimming it because it gives it space to grow and you, you, you trim the weak and the diseased and the, the small yeah. and you let the, uh, the, the bigger thrive. And, so um, I, that was this, a, a big epiphany that I came through. It was like, oh, wait a minute. I, I assumed I had, you know, all the best intentions and answers. And no, like, 
people with my point of view were part of the problem as well. Mm. So it's a little humbling. It is. Man, these forests are so picky. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> it, you know, it took the natives thousands of years probably to learn this stuff. There, there's, there's historical records that there was a giant mammal die-off when, they, mm. when we think the first native peoples came to northern North America. All the large land mammals, you know, became extinct. And that might have been because they hunted them all to extinction. And it took them a while to learn how to live with the land and live in harmony. But eventually they did. And um, maybe we can too. So, we touched on this a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, how exactly will climate change impact the frequency and severity of wildfires, if at all? Yeah, so um, the, the biggest... And this was this is something I, I didn't understand until um, doing this reporting. That, well, twofold. The first thing is that the fire season is lengthening. We're getting rain um, much later. Uh, you mm. know, usually California gets its last rain in April or May, and uh, so you know, mid to late October was often the first rains, and that was the end of fire season. Well, the last two years, actually, the yeah, the last three years. We mm-hmm. didn't get our first rain until November, in late November. So the lengthening of the fire season is big because as soon as you get rain, then fires aren't going to start as easy because the, the ground is wet. But when yeah. you have, what, but the longer the summer lasts, the longer the dry season lasts, the more likely a fire will start. You know, just simple as that because the ground is dry. But then, mm-hmm. and then as I was talking about earlier, when the fires start late in the year, that's when we have those heavy fall winds. And so they're more likely to fuel the fire with all the extra oxygen from the wind. Yeah. So that's one way that climate change is impacting it because we're having a much longer drier season. Uh, the other way is that the nighttime, uh, the nighttime cold temperatures during the winters are not getting as cold. And um, it's obvious for anyone who's have a cabin in the woods in the same spot for multiple decades because they're noticing that they're not having to bury their house out of the snow anymore or dig their house out mm. of the snow. You know, they're not getting eight feet of snow at 4,000 feet in elevation anymore. Maybe they only get a foot of snow at that elevation now. And so uh, with less cold uh, weather, uh, a lot of the pests are surviving. So the pests, uh, like, like the bark beetle, for example, uh, they lay eggs in the winter and then they hatch in the mm. spring. Uh, in the past, a, those, you know, a large portion of those eggs um, were killed off during the deep freezes. And so then you had a limited amount hatching. Well, those eggs aren't dying off uh, in the winters because the winters aren't as cold. And so now more eggs are hatching. And um, combined with our overgrown forests and dry conditions, they're having a field day um, with, uh, with the forest and with, without burning to maintain the forest. And so they would, when the Native Americans would burn, they wouldn't burn thousands and tens of thousands of acres. They'd burn little mosaics. Because the edges between meadows and forest are really where the life happens. That's where food grows. That's where animals can come out of the forest to, to graze. And so they create this mosaic in the forest, and that created a lot of biodiversity. Again, with the lack of biodiversity in the forest, place, um, species like Douglas fir and um, chaparral um, take over. Chaparral is like these kind of smaller... You have a lot of chaparral in Florida. Um, <laughs> you know, mm. small, smaller kind of bushier trees, woodier trees, and those burn really easily. And those kind of, and they're very shade tolerant. So those kinds of, of species 
can take over the forests. And so now when a fire happens um, and you have bark beetles that are taking over certain kinds of species, you have a similar kind of species, you don't have a mosaic of, of different kinds of species and different kinds of conditions. You have almost like a monocrop of forests. If you go into a Sierra Nevada forest, it looks, there's like only two or three kinds of trees that you see in one given area. And when you have that, it, the fire is going to spread faster because you just have similar conditions. Mm. When you have different breakups of, of ecosystems, any disaster is not going to be as bad because these pl- biodiversity creates resiliency. When you lose biodiversity, you're going to have a less resilient forest. And so, and so, that's, so it's all these things. It's, you know, it's, it's climate change, which encourages bark beetle um, you know, infestations. It's, yeah, longer summers. It's, you know, longer, drier summers. And, um, but yeah, but that, that's the idea. So, you know, climate change <laughs> decreases biodiversity. Yeah. Or, it, or it, it can decrease biodiversity. Well, our lack of management has definitely been decreasing biodiversity a lot. It's, it's a shame because the native peoples actually increased biodiversity people. And we can, like, we have the ability as humans to greatly increase biodiversity. And people are doing this throughout the world in this thing called ecosystem restoration camps. We can increase biodiversity if we choose to. And that will create resiliency. And I think that's actually one of the most important things that we as humans can be doing right now is increasing biodiversity. That will create mm-hmm. resiliency to, to fires and to floods. And it will help us feed ourselves. Like we need biodiverse farming. You know, monocrop farming is what's killing our soil. And we could actually be sinking carbon in our farmland if we did tons of cover crops and biodiverse, you know, kind of ecosystem style regenerative agriculture. If we choose to do so, we can, you know, really improve the way we grow food and are resilient to natural disasters. We need to increase biodiversity. And that mm-hmm. will ultimately help with climate change too. Groundwater is a is a major issue too with if we have more groundwater then our trees aren't going to die as fast as well and that's another reason why you want a thin forest so you have less trees competing for that groundwater uh, you know, something i feel like um is rarely talked about when talking about the effects of climate change you always talk about carbon in the air and the carbon cycle right like carbon is you know the fundamental building block of all life on human on on earth including yeah. humans right and you know Destroying any life um, puts carbon into the atmosphere, or like if it burns or deteriorates, or trees actually, you know, suck carbon out of the air and they combine it with the soil, and that's actually the process of sinking carbon, and that's really hmm. important. But it's also the process of sinking water. Water vapor in in the upper atmosphere is a major uh, greenhouse gas, and it is a major cause of climate change right now because we, as a society, of paving over things, of clear-cutting land, of monocropping our agriculture, of draining our wetlands, have limited our, the Earth's ability to soak in water. And so instead, much more is evaporating, and it's evaporating into the upper atmosphere, which then traps heat. And so, as a society, another thing we need to be doing is figuring out ways to soak water into the ground, where it creates more water for our natural mm-hmm. ecosystems to use, and it, takes le- and it has less water in the upper atmosphere that is trapping heat in our atmosphere. So more water in the ground. Some of the most important techniques of permaculture are how to spread water on your ground and, and so the water moves slowly. When water moves fast, it tends to um, deteriorate the land and cause um, 
you know, it removes sediment. When you have the land eroding, then you're further deteriorating the soil. If the water moves really slowly, it's more likely to seep into the soil and not move that sediment around. Do you think with how porous biochar is, that could be one solution to adding more water into the soil and less into the atmosphere? Yeah, that's the idea. For sure. Yeah, that farmers can use that. And people are using that. So um, after horrible fires, you get horrible erosion because you don't have plants, especially like these really hot fires, like at the campfire up in paradise. You know, so many trees were burnt off. All the ground cover was burnt off. Now you just have raw soil. And of course, the campfire was basically put out by rain. The rain happened, Mm. uh, I think, the day before Thanksgiving, which finally put out the fire. So then all the rain comes and all this bare soil just gets washed in all the rivers. So now now you don't have stable soil to, to rebuild or replant on. And you have all this sediment, including all the toxic sediment coming from people's houses. You have household chemicals burning, plastics and carpets and, and cars. All that water goes right into our uh, rivers, which goes yeah. to our reservoirs, which feed all of our agricultural land. And so what a lot of uh, people have been doing, some permaculture people, some people from the ecosystem restoration camps, they are taking, they put swales, um, like basically a giant snake of of wrapped up hay, and they put that vertically across the land to try to slow the water down so it doesn't erode the land as much and limits the erosion. You can also pound biochar into that soil. You, if you work the biochar into the soil, that will absorb some of that water and slow it down. So yeah, biochar could help with erosion and Earlier water Earlier you were talking about sure. what mm. weather contributes to wildfires. Do wildfires actually contribute to weather patterns? I think on a very small scale. I think on a small scale they can, um, but I don't know. That's that's hard to say. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, it, it causes fire can cause additional wind because of the extreme temperature differences. Well, I think we've run through our list of pre-written questions. Cool, cool, cool. At this point, I do have some listener questions. Yeah, please. If you shoot. would like to dive into those, here's an interesting question. Since you're kind of on both sides of this now. Uh, we see wildfires every year, but for the past 12 months, we're hearing about them more dramatically. Is the media doing something wrong? How could they improve? Let's see. That's interesting. I mean, that was, you know, reason, partly one of the reasons why I created the series California Burning was that Mm. I wanted a a deeper, longer look into it. And I was not super satisfied with a lot of the media coverage, mainly because, you know, news stories are, you know, four minutes, eight minutes long, and there's only so much nuance you can go into it. And so I'm like, well, if I create a five-hour series, I can go into a lot of nuance. Um, so this is one that I think we covered a little bit, but a lot of people ask me this. Um, since soot and ashes can be enriching to the soil, is there such thing as too much enrichment? And what effects can too much enrichment have? Um, a lot of people asking basically like, what is this ash going to be doing in the future after wildfires? The biggest problem with the ash is it's used during a catastrophic wildfire when it's burning homes, the ash is very Mm -hmm. toxic. Yeah. You know, from burning insulation and household chemicals and plastics, that stuff is terrible. So yeah, that causes major issues. It really, it clouds our water. Um, I wouldn't say the ash is enriching the soil during a low level fire. You have slightly burnt stuff, and that can enrich the soil. But ash doesn't have any composition. It's, it's thin. Gotcha. But maybe they're talking about the remnants of, you know, a partially burnt tree. And that's yeah. actually, you know, some people could argue against it. But that's kind of, in a way, a way of kind of burying carbon, if that, 
those trees get buried, um, partially burnt. Yeah, that can actually create soil structure, like we were talking about, like with, with biochar crates. Perfect. Okay. Before this next one, you, you hosted a podcast called Very Bad Words. Yeah. How do you feel about swearing in, in science communication and in journalism? Do you think swearing and cussing have any place in there? Um, I can't imagine a real good reason for it. No, actually, I would say probably no, because what I learned from doing Very Bad Words is that, that swearing is an excellent way for communicating emotion. Yeah. And I don't know if that's what you want to do when you're communicating science. Hmm. That's fair. But, but I'm not against fucking swearing. <laughs> like, <laughs> boom. You know, like, uh, yeah, no, I, I love to fucking swear. Like, swearing's the best. Um, that's why I did the show. Um, yeah. and it's, and it's strong. And I, and I love linguistics and I love how language is a reflection on culture and all that kind of stuff. And I was trying to figure out if there was a way to, to relate to um, any of this stuff to, to swearing, um, yeah. Uh, when I first started it, and because that's all I was thinking about for you know two years, but um, <laughs> but no, I, I I don't know if swearing and ecology yeah. necessarily have a <laughs> are intersecting. Now, so the reason I ask is because uh, in regards to wildfires, one of our listeners, Kevin, asked. <laughs> How are we putting them shits out? <laughs> and so I just wanted to sort of prime you, I guess, for that. Well, maybe yeah. in that kind of question. Well, the thing is, is that maybe that's the wrong question. We, sh- we shouldn't be putting that shit out. And uh, we should be letting that shit burn. We just need to be mm. doing it on our terms. That's pretty funny. <laughs> we have some funny listeners. I'll give them that. How much money goes towards mitigating a decently sized wildfire? Would you have an estimate for something like that or an answer for that? Oh, man, I, I would have to look that up. It's, it's okay. a lot. It's a lot. It's millions of dollars. Right. I think a lot of these we have actually answered. Um, maybe this one will we'll find a place. Uh, what extremophiles survive fires like these? Will their populations skyrocket now relative to the species who could not withstand the fires? Yeah, uh, redwood trees are great at surviving fires because mm-hmm. they're very moist and they grow really, really huge and have really thick bark. Um, cedar trees, if they're big enough, can survive fires. Um, a lot of trees can survive. Uh, oak trees. Oak trees are some of the best at surviving fires. They're huge, have very hard wood. And even yeah. when they don't survive, um, usually within a year or less, uh, you'll, they sprout from their stumps. And so they can actually hmm. be burnt down completely and they will regrow and repropagate with fire. And um, Hazel, you know, I went, you know, on that episode with Native Intelligence, the reason why we, I was with her was that we were looking for hazel sticks for the basket making of, you know, of her people. And hmm. um, hazel sprouts with fire. So after the, the hazel tree dies, it gives new sprouts and it makes these really nice um, uh, sticks that don't have knots in them uh, for the first year. And so they're really great for making baskets. Um, yeah, so, and then a lot of plants, they don't necessarily survive fire itself, but yeah, they come back with fire. And so once that yeah. space is made, um, then they can start to sprout again because they get the light that they need on the soil. And so, yeah, so fire is, fire is very beneficial for the forests out in the West, as long as it's, you know, not too extreme. I can't think of any animal species, though. The animal species... They leave, although a lot of animal species yeah. love the aftermath of fire because there's all sorts of bugs and, um, you know, and new flowers. They're, oh, God, flowers love fire. Flowers will come back because, again, <laughs> they get that light on the ground. So you get to see really... There's this area near where I live called Table Mountain. It's this um, plateau of a, of a butte really nearby, and it's known for having beautiful wild flyers, flowers. And uh, after this 
fire season, it was the most beautiful I've ever seen it. So yeah, so fire has a lot of benefits to, to, to nature. It creates biodiversity and, um, you know, I mean, the more fire you have in, in one area, especially if they're low-level fires and, you know, small, low-level fires, it helps create species and it makes, um, sorry, it creates help species diversity and, you know, in each generation that experiences fire will be more resilient to it because the weak ones die off and the strong ones live. It's, it, it really, it's basically small, low-level fires that the Native Americans set all throughout this continent were just mm. a way of increasing evolution and making it faster. You know, you cause That's, a disruption and yeah. the, the weak die and the strong survive. I've literally never thought about it like that. Would you have any uh, takeaways, any big picture items, something you'd want our listeners to know if they hadn't, if we hadn't said it already, anything like that? If you own land, uh-huh. learn, learn how to make it, um, learn how to make its ecosystem functions work better. Wherever that happens to be, you know, understand how your land wants to work and encourage that, encourage water seepage, encourage biodiversity. If everyone who owned land did that, we can make a huge dent in the climate change problem. You know, I have a tiny, tiny, I have 0.2 acres in, in, in a kind of downtownish plot of land. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an empty lot. It's, you know, I'm starting it from scratch and not everyone has the luxury of doing that. But I'm trying to think about how to create water seepage and how to create biodiversity and basically never have bare, uncovered soil. At the very least, you should have leaves over your soil. A little bit better, you should have plants with deep roots. If you have plants with deep roots on your soil, you're going to seep soil and you're going to take carbon out of the air and put it into the land. If every, you know, I don't know how many landowners are on this planet, but if every, if three billion landowners did that on this planet, we could soak up a ton of carbon and water out of the atmosphere and make a dent in climate change without even having to stop driving our gas guzzling, you know, SUV. <laughs> if you want to get rid of your gas guzzling SUV, that's even better. You know, that's a bonus. But I'm saying like, <laughs> yeah. I can't yeah. control, I can't control the amount of carbon from a factory from China or Texas mm. or, or San Francisco or Oakland. You know, I can't control that. You know, I'm not a big, powerful person. I don't own a factory, mm-hmm. but I can control the tiny bit of land that wants to seep carbon up. But that means I can't pave over it. It means I, you know, it means I got to understand the nature of that land. It means I shouldn't put yeah. a lawn on it. You know, especially on the West Coast where it doesn't rain, lawns are kind of the worst thing you can do for water seepage because lawn, lawn just, lawns have very short roots, so they don't seep uh, water, and then they just drink all the water, and they use a lot of water. and and you often need fertilizer for it. So you're soaking fertilizer into the ground and you're not soaking water into the ground. So get rid yeah. of your lawn, get rid of your um, concrete um, patio and put a paver. And so water can get between the steps. You know, I'm not laugh- asking to live like, you know, a person wallowing in the mud. You could still make a really, really nice, you know, back garden or, you know, yard in your house. But think about how it's going to water- seep water and embrace that. I think if we all did that, cool. we could make it. We could make a difference. Heck yeah, I'm into that. I'm gonna go do cool. that to my small front yard right now. In fact, hell yeah, amen. <laughs> Perfect. Well, Brianna, do you have anything else uh, as well? Anything else? 
looks like nothing off our reddit <laughs> all right yeah no this has been great thank you so much <laughs> yeah thank you for uh, for having me on this has been really fun of course yeah thanks for being on Uh, full disclosure, I got a new microphone, so if I sound better, uh, that's why. If I sound worse, just don't say anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> my, my self-esteem is really fragile. Um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but anyway, <laughs> thanks for listening. Uh, Wyatt here is still waiting on people to call him from that one time he put his telephone number at the end of the episode. Um, oh, yeah. I'm actually disappointed that more people haven't reached out to him, bothered him, spammed him. Yeah, there's one episode of No Planet B where my phone number is in it. Oops. Anyway, yeah, thanks. So thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to follow us on Instagram, our handle is No Planet Vcast. It's the same on Twitter. If you want to send us an email for suggestions or for questions, anything like that, it's uh, No Planet at gmail.com. That's No Planet at gmail.com send us an email talk to us go find my phone number in one of these episodes and give me a call that's totally fine and have a great rest of your uh before he uh makes me say day i'm gonna uh-huh. just add that well, if you, you want to write handwritten notes handwritten i brain are you gonna give them my address <laughs> no um i'm gonna get us a p.o box eventually so just save those up until the time comes and one day I'll be able to write you back. <laughs> the announcement you just made is, hey, you know those letters you're writing to us? You're, one day you're going to be able to send them. Can you imagine that? That's all you just told them. All right, everyone. Oh, wait, I wait, hope wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> I swear to God. <laughs> yeah, no, no, you're good. Carry on. <laughs> I hope you guys have a great rest of your... Whatever thing you're drinking right now. <laughs> Very nice. I like that (laughs) That a lot. So bad. (laughs) Oh, see you on Firefox because that's what Wyatt uses. See you on my Firefox browser, everybody. (laughs) 